Our first scripture reading is from the book of Esther in the seventh and nine chapters. Listen now for the word of the Lord. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. On the second day, as they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have won your favor, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me. That is my petition. And the lives of my people, that is my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have held my peace. But no enemy can compensate for this damage to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he who has presumed to do this? Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Look, the very gallows that Haman has, has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, stands at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the anger of the king abated. Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, enjoining them that they should keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same month, year by year, as, on the, day, as the days on which the Jews gained relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned from them, for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and presents to the poor. Our psalm is the 124th. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when our enemies attacked us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us, then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers, the snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Our New Testament reading is from the letter of James in the fifth chapter, verses 13 to 20. Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up. And anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. 
The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being like us, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth yielded its harvest. My brothers and sisters, if any among you wanders from the truth and is brought back by another, you should know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save the sinner's soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And from the Gospel of Mark in the ninth chapter, verses 38 to 50. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will soon afterward be able to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly, I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. For it is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and to be thrown into Gehenna. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into Gehenna, where their worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves, and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Even though the book of Esther is satire and set in ancient times, the book is probably closest to our, to our experience of God and the world than a lot of the other books. It's set in a secular, patriarchal world. Esther is subverting her own Jewishness in order to fit into the surrounding culture and its values. We see her in a royal court where the king of Persia is described as something of a buffoon, blind to the moral character of those who surround him, clueless about his own people. And the king's right-hand man has such a fragile ego, he arranges genocide in repayment of a mere slight. And in order to per perpetrate his genocide legally, he convinces his weak king that the Jews pose a threat to, to the king personally. Propaganda and fake news are ruling this kingdom. And Esther, in the midst of this, realizes that she is in a very precarious position. 
She might die if she dares to speak out, but she will die if she does not. So with a death sentence hanging over her people, she can't pretend anymore that she's not who she was born to be, that she is not one of those claimed by God as chosen. The king values her for her beauty and for nothing else, but she shows him that she is also strong and courageous and wise. And she does something truly remarkable in her day and in ours. She prevails against the patriarchy. Furthermore, she teaches the king that oh-so-important aspect of good government, that the well-being of the state is dependent upon the well-being of its people even the Jews. There are indeed a lot of parallels in this story and the world we live in today. Most strikingly, though, is that God is not explicitly in this story. Look for even the name of God in the entire book of Esther, and you will not find it. The closest we come to an acknowledgement of God's presence in this story is when Mordecai suggests that Esther's presence in the royal household at this time and in these circumstances is the work of divine providence. And even though this is such a subtle reference to the presence of God in this human drama, it is clear that God is very much presumed to be at work in this story through these people, where they are. It's about all we can say about God in our own stories, isn't it? Providence must be at work. God is using us to further God's plans, that we, as God's people, have something to teach the world. We still have a lot to learn, though, Like Esther, the vast majority of us ignore our God-given identity in order to blend in with the culture and its values. We even go so far as to confuse which values are those of the world and which are those of the Christian. We've been worldly Christians for so long that we've forgotten what it means to be Christians in the world but not of the world. James warned us long ago, long before theological matters of doctrine and and dogma were even established, the wisdom of the world gets us into trouble. Make no mistake, trouble is where we are. The people who are supposed to teach the world as Esther taught her king have forgotten the lessons we're supposed to teach. Chief among them, that our well-being relies on the well-being of others. Even those at the bottom of society, even the victims of sexual abuse and assault, victims of economic predation, victims of apathy and exploitation, 
victims of circumstance. Even those whose accident of birth caused them to be something other than what we are. We have also forgotten in our own thirst for power that Jesus had no desire for such power. Way at the beginning, before Jesus even entered his public ministry, he was confronted by the adversary, the Satan, with these temptations of riches and power and rule over all kingdoms. Jesus was not interested in amassing or preserving power for himself or his own group. When the disciples got territorial about their power to heal and cast out demons, Jesus said, get over yourselves. It's not about you. They were jealous of their power, and they didn't want to share it. And Jesus told them, power is not what matters. Service is what matters. Now what should that tell us today as we watch those who are termed public servants wrangle for power? What does it tell us today when so many Christians are bloodthirsty for power on the worldly stage? so thirsty that they'd even drink bitter gall to get it. To sacrifice everything that Christ taught us just for the sake of being in power. Mixing up what Jesus said, you may not have noticed this because it's a phrase that we have perverted for so long. Whoever is not against us is for us. Now, I'm sure that's not how most of you remember that phrase. The way we remember it, because the way we like to say it is, if you're not for us, you're against us, right? If you're not with us, you're against us. That is not what Jesus said. Whoever is not against us is for us. And we've forgotten that because we are so caught up in who is against us and who we are against. We've even gone so far as to set aside our morals and even the heart of Christ himself just to have the power to legislate everyone else into what we call good Christian behavior. That kind of manipulation in and of itself is decidedly not good Christian behavior. One of my colleagues the other day noted that power has become more desirable even than justice in the eyes of many a disciple. Damn the consequences of selling out our Savior for the sake of the evil one who tried to tempt Jesus with worldly power. In this country, Christians, however you choose to define that term, have decided that power must be Christian 
that Christians must have the power even if we have nothing else. So we trade integrity and ethics and morals and even common decency for the sake of power. The struggle to attain and maintain power has driven people away from the church and away from God and away from God's Christ. Christian hypocrisy in being in power at all costs, even at the cost of the gospel itself, has revealed the church to the world as an organization of charlatans. People aren't leaving the church because they're lazy or sinful or they just ain't got Jesus yet. They're leaving the church because the church has made it so clear that nothing but power and privilege matter. And yet that is not the good news of the gospel. And that is what we need to tackle. But I will tell you this. Our, our children did a very nice job of summing up Esther's story. I encourage you sometime to read it from beginning to the end. Because Esther prevailed. Despite being a mere beauty pageant winner and trophy wife valued only for her looks, Esther remembered who she was. Not according to the secular patriarchy of the Persian Empire, but as a daughter of Abraham and a child of God. And Esther used her position and her strength and her sheer audacity to fight injustice, and she prevailed. Esther spoke out about what good government does in seeing to the well-being of all its people. Esther unveiled the fake news of her day to reveal the propagandist himself to be the true villain who was lying to the people for his own vendetta and gain. Esther took her place beside the king to rule alongside him in power and service to her people. All of this, even though it was nowhere immediately obvious exactly where and how God was active in this story, there's that suggestion from early on in the book. Perhaps you have been brought to this place for this purpose. So that Esther might pursue God's own justice. Because God is in the story. Even when God goes unnamed, God is in the story acting through Esther and Mordecai and even Xerxes himself, King Ahasuerus. And God is acting through each of us because each of us has been brought to this place at this time. 
for such a purpose. And so, God, having brought you to this place, how might God use you to pursue justice? How might you become active in God's plan? How might you be beautiful and strong and audacious? How might you eschew the power of the world for the sake of Jesus' name? How might you follow Christ down a path of servitude rather than power? How might you reveal the folly of the world's wisdom? How might you stand up to the king and to the king's minions for the sake of your people and for the sake of the Christ whose name you bear. God has called you to such a time and place as this, perhaps for just such a purpose. For God's glory, now and always. Amen. Amen.